Welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of a life, the show of John Carpenter, the show of punk rock, the show of all the things I want to talk about. Today's guest is the amazing Ewan Morgan of Diageo, one of the most brilliant and insightful, informative guys in the Scotch whiskey business. We sat down recently when he was in Austin, Texas, outside for a little bit. It was a beautiful day, some palm trees, a pool, some frozen drinks, but yet the heat toasted my laptop, so you'll notice a little bit of a volume dip and a change in topics as Ewan is talking about his kids, so that's a little bit of insight for you there. Another piece here is we talked about the Game of Thrones scotches before the finale just last Sunday, and you can get to see what Ewan's perspective and his theories are about how the show ended now that we know how the show ended. So, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Ewan Morgan of so if, if we backtrack to pre-pubescent ewan sure pre-pubescent ewan was listening to probably a lot of black flag perfect i was gonna ask uh that. a lot of pixies yeah and um, he was also listening to bad religion because everyone cuts their teeth with bad religion favorite yeah dag nasty uh, DC based yes. hardcore band minor threat right anyway, minor yeah, threat yeah, well they're they're a given yeah, and then okay. you and then you kind of move into your more kind of political stuff uh, you know obviously minor threat being very political nation of Ulysses yes. bands like that dead uh, Kennedys right for De- dead Kennedys yeah. yeah again that was more when I was younger when yeah. I was listening to like you know Jello Biafra and No Means No and yeah. Dead Kennedys and all of that good stuff so a real a real mix match so I, I'm, I'm not like biggie tupac there's no east coast west coast beef i'm fairly bipartisan because you were on a third punk. coast somewhere right yeah i was in spaceside in <laughs> yeah. scotland the, the heartland of hardcore yeah, the, whiskey <laughs> so if you think about it go back to talisker 10 right because uh-huh. again this is this unsung hero it's not massively popular but it has a cult following yeah can you think of a band that reminds you of talisker 10 well talisker 10 and and you've probably done your homework on me is one of my favorite whiskeys no. of all time so much so that my cat is called talisker <laughs> uh, and and she Wait, is real quick is it tal whisker no like no that would be too clever for me <laughs> I see, okay. it's just talisker uh she's small black and and can fairly bipolar sometimes yeah. she's the nicest cat on earth and sometimes she she's not so nice and she will swipe at my face <laughs> when i go downstairs it's like that i still love her pieces but talisker 10 it's, it's salty. It, it has a really wonderful peppery smoke to it. Yeah. It can be a little polarizing for some people because they're, you know, they're maybe used to bourbons or Canadian or Irish whiskeys, yeah, yeah. which are a little easier on the palate. Then they taste something like Talisker. It's like a taste explosion. Absolutely. It's like the first time you have an oyster. You know, it's, it's a fairly binary thing. You either like it or you don't, yeah. or then you become accustomed to it over time. 
I see Talisker is exactly the same thing. So if I had to like pin a band on it, because you just these are perfect adjectives for a few bands that come to mind for me. All right, you go first. Well, you well, I go first. Well, okay. So I was thinking Circle Jerks because Greg Morris is very, very hard to get close to. Uh huh. But once you do, like, okay, I like this guy. He talks maybe a little bit too much, right? And he is a salty guy, not to be literal. But that's a band that's like kind of polarizing because of the way he sings. Wrong. I was gonna say Melvins. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, a polarizing band. Sure. Uh, you know, kind of noisecore punk. Yeah. That you know the. Their their attitude towards music was kind of pushing the boundaries. It was fairly edgy. Yeah. Their their live shows were were not kind of cut and paste punk shows by any right. means. It was almost them and the dwarves. Yeah. You you either liked them or, or you didn't like them. And in fact, I was listening to a podcast with Buzz from from Melvins and he was talking about when they went on tour with Faith No More, when Faith No More made it big. Yeah. And Faith No More was selling out like stadiums and stuff. Real and thing then, days? Yeah, real yeah, thing yeah. days. So like when Epic came out and it became this MTV like super hit, kids were turning up to go and see these kind of anthemic pop punk songs, and then the Melvins were supporting them, and all <laughs> these kids are like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> Those people were like walking out and going into the parking lot and everything, waiting for like the headline act to come on. In yeah. fact, Mike Patton got so annoyed with it that he would start to do like old school like punk versions of their songs just to annoy these kids Man. and and he got more he got more and more agitated throughout the course of it and, and more and more kind of dis disconnected with their fan base and it's maybe why he went a little potty maybe it's interesting how he went but i i like that so, all right so you know the, the, here's the thing about the melvins i think that really really relates i can relate to talisker it's a big wall of sound scotch mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's you you know you could say dark way there's so many different ways to describe it but it is so big and so round and it is loud yeah just like the melvins it's not it's not that it's inarticulate but it forces you to make a choice right then and there it's a binary sky yeah there's another band that popped into mind and they're, they're not they're not really punk or anything like that they're like drone metal yeah. and they're called sun sun I haven't they're heard from sun. seattle they're now la based it's a two-piece experimental drone oh, metal right. band yeah and when you go and see them live, they're not an album band, although they do do albums. They did one with Scott Walker, actually. What, before he passed the person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did an experimental album with him. But their, al their albums are like, it just sounds like a noise. But yeah. when you go and see them live, it's, it's like a, it's a sensory thing. So you sit there and it's this kind of brown noise washes over Perfect, you. Yeah. And if you've ever seen like My Bloody Valentine yeah. live, it's kind of the Wall same. Wall of sound, jam. that's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. so it it's just hits you there and your chest reverberates. I was actually there with folks from the Washington Post. I saw them at 930 Club in DC and the photographer was trying to take pictures through this fog bank that yeah. they pumped the stage with and he couldn't take pictures because everything was coming out blurry, he thought he had faulty kit. So he went and swapped out his kit in his truck, came back, and then still the same thing. And then yeah. he realized his eyes were actually resonating so hard oh that he couldn't God, focus amazing. properly. So Sun, S-U-N-N, yeah. they're named after an old 1960s, 1970 amplification brand. It's amazing bass amp, man. Yeah, and yeah. They're, they're noisy. That's, Check I, them out. I like that, and I absolutely will. So music, you know, there's always that parallel between spirits and music for me, for sure. And we'll talk more about kind of your perspective on Scotch and the modern realm and all of that. But, you know, I was looking at your, you know, your decorated history over 28 years and whiskey and such. But one of the things that kind of brought, was brought to my attention is that there's this gap in the 90s 
where I feel like you went on a nomadic voyage after you left Maltman. I, di- I did. I, I did, yeah. So I, I worked in the whiskey industry from the age of 16. And when I, when I left school, in, involuntary left school, I was a- asked to leave school. For what? For, for uh, I can't really go into it. Sure. But, but it involved whiskey. Oh, okay. oh good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I kind of pioneered my kind of whiskey salesman technique. Uh, uh, probably, it's foreshadowing, uh, right? Yeah. Like, again, without getting into too much trouble, yeah, I, I was advised that leaving school was probably a good idea. So I left school on the Friday, started work very early on Monday morning, shoveling malt at Tamdu Distillery. Did that for a few years and then decided I'm going to kind of do other things. Yeah. Left the whiskey industry for a period of time. Lived in France, in the south of France, in a tent for oh, a year. Amazing. What were you Which doing was, for work? I was working on yachts in a town called Antibes uh-huh. between Cannes and Nice. I then came home for a little bit, a uh, couple of months, and my sister lived in Israel at that point on a kibbutz. She said, why don't you come out and hang out here for a couple of weeks? You'll enjoy it. Sure. It's sunny. It's nice. There's a pool. There's lots of young Scandinavian girls work here it's as well. It's kind of like right now. We're around palm yeah. trees, a pool, and Scandinavian women. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very Flashback. similar. There's, there's less, there's less uh, falafel and chicken pots <laughs> and pomelo fields. That's very, very true. So I went there and then ended up staying there for a year. Uh, words on different kibbutz looked after 6,000 chickens yeah. at one point. So I would go in there with my, my headphones on, listening to punk rock, picking up chicken eggs every morning. That was an interesting job. And then I worked as various things. I was a taxi driver. I worked as a, a chef. Yeah. I was making hummus at one point. I was uh, working in a nightclub at one point. I was a painter and decorator. Living it I, up. I did, I did everything and anything, basically, uh, and loved it. But you also, it looks like you got your de- a few degrees and a few specialities at that point too, right? When I came back to the UK, um, I put myself through college and was working at the same time. And then I put myself through university, had a couple of kids yeah. throughout the course of that period as well and put, gave myself a computer science degree. So I have a computer science degree. Interesting. What were they coding in back in that day? COBOL. COBOL. Java. That tells me how old you action are. ActionScript for yeah. Flash. <laughs> All of those like... Lots of macromedia. De- and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of dead languages that yeah. are pointless now. So if I ever went back into the computer world, I'd, I'd be effed. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I don't have to. Uh, and then, actually, weirdly, because of that, I had a couple of jobs, tech-based jobs. Yeah. And then one of them, actually, w- was with a whiskey company, which, which were called Morris and Bullmore, which were part of Suntory. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a job with those folks. They found out my whiskey background, and then they had me doing more and more ambassadorial things, going to whiskey shows, traveling around, yeah. going to Japan. I got the chance to visit their distilleries in Japan, which was phenomenal. Uh, and then... I did that for a few years, I think seven or eight years, and then Diageo approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in moving to the States? And I was like, no, not really. And then they asked me again, and on, on that day, they, they got me when I, when, you know, I was probably at my weakest point because the weather was garbage, yeah. and, and that's probably 90% of the time in Scotland. But the weather wasn't great. Uh, I didn't feel like I, the next step was completely visible to me. So I was like, you know what? I'll talk to my wife. I spoke to my wife and she's like, sure, let's do it. So she was into it. Yeah. So we, we sold our house. We sold our cars. We took our kids out of school. And my kids had never been to the States before. 
we flew over yeah. in the uh, 29th of October 2010, and I've been here ever since. Where about? Where is it, New York? I live in Annapolis, Maryland. Annapolis? Yeah. Interesting. You're sending sailing, the kids off to Sailing David capital of America. You know, it's a, a drinking time with a sailing problem is the joke <laughs> that they have there. Um, well, there's maybe a nautical theme here. You're working in the south of France on some yachts. Is this these skills transferable to Annapolis? Not you really. fish a bit. I see there's I do. Bit, yeah. I do. I do like to fish. Uh, I grew up fly fishing yeah. in the River Spey. Um, I haven't had a huge amount of opportunity to fish over here. And f- yeah. But funnily enough, I was in New York last week and I was talking to a friend of mine who works in a, in a bar in the East Village called Yves, and, and he's a fly fisherman. And oh, he invited wow. me to go fly fishing in upstate New York. I was actually in Aspen a few weeks back as well and met another guy who ran fly fishing there. So yeah. I may try and get back into it. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a catch and releaser me too. type person. So. I, you know what also is an ideology that kind of goes along with punk rock? It's funny and, and as visceral as the music is sometimes. It may be even violent, but it was always as a counteraction to things, right? Animal rights is a really big thing. Did you kind of feel that way as a, as a kid and kind of now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a very leftist community. Yeah. But again, I mean, you, you covered the whole gamut when you're looking at hardcore because you could look at people like Gigi Allen, for example. Yeah, that's true. Who, who is probably the, the most of extreme of, of that kind of New York hardcore CBGB yeah. scene. Probably wasn't too much into animal rights. No, he was anything. just doing drugs. I doubt he had any time to eat anything. S- self-mutilation. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and heroin, I yeah, think, bunch, was, sure. was de rigueur for that fella. Absolutely. But he ended up dead at a very, fairly young age. But then you have other bands, you know, like... Propagandy, who we were right. talking about earlier on. Veganism, I think it was a... V- yeah, yeah, you know, ultra-vegan, ultra-leftist, um, you know, kind of anti-corporation yeah. um, punk ethos that they have. And uh, there's many, many, like, parkour bands. That, you know, Fugazi, oh, obviously, being another one, Minor Threat. Although know, Ian Mackay apparently eats cheese now. Oh, Ar- he does? Artisanal cheese, yeah. One of my friends worked at a cheese shop in D.C. She'd run into him and sell him stuff. There, I did not know that. It's not heartbreaking. As an adult, I feel okay about this. As a kid, I might have been a little upset, right? Do you want to know a fun fact about cheese? When I lived, <laughs> it's a good story, a great cheese segue. When I lived in Israel, I lived in the Afula Valley near Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And there, there was, and I think still is, a cheese shop there called Cheeses of Nazareth. <laughs> There's a little cheese segue as I sip on my delicious cocktail. That's the, the kind of joke... The, the echelon of joke I'm looking for. That's about as far as I go. And I'm not even a dad, but that's still right in the wheelhouse of making these punny jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you something. This, this, Diageo has been a really good partner for me, too, and like the way that their PR companies work and things. But I, I was thinking about what might be a dichotomy working for a corporation. But what I, when I was talking to Jorge, who he wanted me to tell you he was... Excited we were talking and that you are one of his favorite bosses of all time. Uh, one of. <laughs> one of. You could have rephrased that. I'm gonna he, have, he, he tallied. I'm going like to have words buses. with him after this. If he's not careful, I'll tell you the yurt story <laughs> involving him. I'll do it when we get off, off mic. Whatever I can take back to embarrass him would be great. All right. Once we stop recording, <laughs> I'll tell you the yurt story and you can text him and it will make... Your day, my day, and not his. <laughs> but you know, and I don't. You don't have to comment on this like with any great detail. But it feels like, you know, when you get you get older, you wrote your novel, 
and you're saying, you know what I really want to get into now is mentorship. I want to pay my success forward to younger people or to people that perhaps don't have as much access. And so Diageo has this program which with the likes of Pierre Almas and Union where you guys are actually giving them money because you want a, a diversified portfolio and you want to actually help people that perhaps don't have access to capital and stuff. This is is it this is kind of a shift for Diageo because it seems like to open things up and create a very, very bigger narrative. It, it's definitely something that they've been focusing more on over, I would say, the last three or four years. Yeah. And that's down to various things. You know, corporate responsibility sure. being a huge one. Our sustainability record is, is phenomenal, and, I, and I'm not just saying that right. as a corporate shill. Well, and I'm not, a, I'm not a shill either, right? Like, I do uh-huh. this out of my own. So I'm, I'm talking about the positivity of Diageo because I had an at-length conversation with Jorge about it, uh-huh. and I think it's worth noting. Yeah, so, for example, brands like Pierre Almas or, or even Don Julio, you know, when they're looking at local communities, it's the communities that make the brand. Right. And that is, you know, specifically with Pierre Almas, you know, they're supporting their local community. They're offering employment. But even if you go further back, you look at Ron Zacapa. Mm-hmm. Ron Zacapa, they were, they were looking at the, the impoverished villages in Guatemala after the revolution there. Uh and they were seeing, you know, this destitution there. So when they, they were looking for suppliers for their patate, which is the woven band that goes around every bottle, they were actually going to the villages and employing people in the villages, yeah. you know, giving them a job so they could sustain themselves and sustain their families. And then you look at the distilleries of Kappa, you know, they've been 100% energy efficient for nearly two decades. And nobody talks about that. No, that's what I'm saying. You know, they, they've been burning their big gas and running their own generators to create enough energy that they overproduce and they put energy back into the national grid. Yeah. If you go all the way over to Scotland, the Cameron Bridge distillery, it's 115 million litres capacity a year. It's a huge, huge distillery. Yeah. It's 95% energy efficient that's because crazy. the spent grain is added to what we call aerobic respirators and then bugs and microbes attack it create methane we then ignite that methane and turbines yeah. and it generates the energy for that distillery so i know because you, you i could go to any length of scientific granularity with you on distilling but, but one thing when jorge was saying because i'm a very huge fan of mezcal mm. and have studied it for quite a while now and he was saying that when they grow mushrooms with the bagasse that it deacidifies it and makes it a better fuel source as a block of agave fiber which i never even thought about that relationship or the reciprocity between fungus mm-hmm. and spent agave. I can't, be, I can't believe you just said reciprocity and fungus. I think that's <laughs> another punk rock band, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. Fungal hardcore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a well, new category for you. Yeah. But yeah, that, that whole kind of s- cyclical thing where they're looking at, here's our byproduct. What can we do with our byproduct? Yeah. We can either use it as a source of fuel or we can use it at, and use all of the, you know, the goodness that's in it the microbial goodness in it to grow something else sure. and in this case it's going to be fungus yeah which they will then commercialize and then they will sell as an artisanal fungus <laughs> there's another punk rock band for you uh so it's wonderful that you know the distilling industry and not just the distilling industry but the, the alcohol industry in general are looking at what their byproducts are yeah. and looking how those can be repurposed so there's no or very little wastage yeah and even down to the point Again, going back to sustainability, you know, Diageo, as, as a, the largest spirits producer in the world, you know, stopped using plastic straws last year. They yeah. outright banned them. We don't have them in any of our bars. And when we do events, 
you know, we, we don't want to have them there. We have like sustainable straws there right. made from bamboo or hay and, or, or paper, right. recycled paper. So even these little changes over time make a huge, huge impact to the environment. And, and, and our distilleries are offsetting not just energy, but offsetting water. So we're trying to recycle as much oh, water amazing. as possible. Cameron Bridge by next year will be recycling 55% of the water used in there, which is going to be one of the highest in the industry. And to, to kind of level set folks on Cameron Bridge, they make a massive amount of GNS, right? For Tanqueray and the, some other... Yeah, they, they make uh, small boutique brands like Smirnoff uh-huh. and Gordon's Gin <laughs> and Pims and Tanqueray. See, but uh, that's one of the behind-the-curtains distillers. A lot of folks, unless they dig into it, they don't really realize like the yeah. same neutrals coming from these places and then all the other variability comes from the individual people putting botanicals and stuff in it. Yeah, so like your your base spirit is coming from the same stills, but then, you know, in the case of gin, Tanqueray, sure. it then goes through an additional distillation process. And in the case of Tanqueray 10, it goes through then again another distillation process in a very small still called Tiny 10, yeah. where all the citrus is then distilled and then added to the other distillates that we have coming through. And they create these new wonderful flavors. And then the grain whiskey, a lot of the grain whiskey that we use in Johnny Walker, for example, comes from Cameron Bridge mm-hmm. as well, as well as some other grain distilleries. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know, after a while when I was listening to records, I'm like, you know, I really like this record, I really like this record. And then I realized they were all produced by Gil Norton. <laughs> <laughs> or Steve Albini. Or St- well, Steve, of course, right? That crazy, crazy lunatic of a motherfucker. But but yes, but, but so that's the thing. This, it's this arterial distillery that connects all these spirits we're very familiar with you yeah. know and I, I love that because when you kind of just start to take a 10,000 view 10,000 foot view of it you start to see everything and the massive output of well Cameron it's Bridge. also a very old distillery it opened in the 1820s and it was one of the the first continuous distillation stills in the world yeah. you know a guy called Robert Steen invented that still the patent still in 1828 and it went into Kirkliston Distillery, where Edinburgh Airport is today. Mm. And then once he'd finished his trials, it was then moved into Cameron Bridge. Two years after that, Aeneas Kofi invented the Kofi still, which went into his distillery in Dublin. And he obviously took the credit. And when people talk about continuous distillation. Yeah. Aeneas Coffey, who looks like a member of Mastodon. <laughs> uh, he really <laughs> does. He really does. Beers? Yeah. Uh, or a home brewer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or a homebrewer. <laughs> a homebrewer who loves Mastodon. Or Meshuggah. I think they all love Mastodon, frankly. They all probably I think they probably yeah. do. That's their, that's their jam when they're, <laughs> when they're sniffing hops or whatever it is they're into these days. But, yeah. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, Cameron Bridge yeah. Distillery. So it's an old distillery. Many people think that it's a brisk, brand-new, fabricated, super distillery, but it's not. It has its roots deeply in history with the Haig family who oh. owned it, you know, the Haig brothers. In fact, Robert Steen was their cousin, who was an engineer, yeah. and actually it was kind of necessity became the mother invention. They were they came to him with their issue, and their issue was we need more whiskey and we need it produced in a continuous fashion. Sure. So he took actually an idea from a French guy called Sir Anthony Perrier, who in 1825 at Spring Lane Distillery in Dublin came up with a crude version of continuous distillation. Didn't work particularly well. Yeah. Robert Steen saw that idea, and he was like, I'm, I'm going to improve on it. And then two years after that, Aeneas Coffey took that idea and then improved on it again, yeah. preheating the wash, which was a very cost-effective way. And it's still used today. It's yeah, so it's cost-effective uh, and such so an e- ecologically friendly way of distilling. It, it just makes complete sense. It does. So thinking about contrast for a moment, right? So you are a very tech-forward guy. 
your presence on social media is you know above none it's like it's you're there you're taking pictures of all stuff it really really looks good so you have really one foot into the future and technology and one foot in the past so you're a punk rocker that also works for a big corporation with a soul right so mm. this kind of balance for you do you feel creatively and maybe even spiritually that you have this kind of balance with all these things going on in your life um well if i was to put on my my kind of introspective theological hat yeah which this one is not this is a uscss nostromo it is that may be a good thinking it's a replica hat from the original alien movie 1979 this was the hat that uh john john hurt wore as well john hurt oh he did yeah before his chest exploded i thought it was the harry dean stanton hat but that's okay maybe he did harry dean stanton who was also an escape from new york yes one of my favorite movies john carper is my favorite movie maker of all time we can talk about that yep that was a high five. That was. But this scene that got us to the clear the mind a little bit. Balance? Yeah. And and there always has to be balance. You can't you can't be like balls to the wall, foot to the floor, twenty four seven all the time. Yeah. Otherwise you, you have burnout. You have to have that moment of, you know, introspection. You have to have that moment where you have to gather your thoughts and think about what you're gonna do next in a measured way. Yeah, because yeah. it has to make sense. It has to make sense to you and it also has to make sense to the people who you're going to talk to. So a good example of this is we have a series called Bar Labs and your friend Jorge does a phenomenal agave bar lab. Mm -hmm. And we travel the country offering high level education to the trade. So and it can be anything from like blending labs with scotch through to agave through to batching through to draft systems and and one that i just wrote recently was a sensory one mm. which is very near and dear to my heart because i'm i'm a, an olfactory beast and that's what i do day in day out is i i sniff and i taste yeah, and i yeah. analyze so i thought was, this would be great because a few years ago on world class when we were on tour with world class we we did a, a kind of tamed down version of a sensory lab what I wanted to do was really blow it apart and, and get more science heavy and geeky on sure. it and understand why things taste the way they taste and look at the chemical components that make up pineapple, for yeah. example, or strawberries. Um, look at why things taste sweeter than other things and different types of sugars, different types of acids. We teach people how to use refractometers because, you know, the amount of sugar that we put into drinks is, is sometimes ludicrous. You know, mm-hmm. if you're buying a tiki drink, you have no idea how much sugar is in there, but there's going to be a lot. You can, you can guarantee yourself, you know, the, the base level of some rums is very high. Mm-hmm. The amount of simple that they're using in there, the amount of fruit juices that have got a lot of inherent sugars in them in there as well. So understanding just how much sugar people are consuming and how much sugar these people are serving and making them cognizant of that was an important thing for me, as well as that we talk about salts and we talk about umami. Mm-hmm and using umami in a careful, considered way to amplify flavors so you can use less sugars. Or, you know, using saline solutions to counter bitterness rather than using sweeteners, for example. And we do a really good example, and you you can do it if you get like a fairly bitter coffee. You know, and some people love bitter coffees. I personally do not. But adding just a small amount of like a 20% saline solution to bitter coffee you know, you completely dip that bitterness. Sure. So if you are given like a very bitter drink, you can add just a tiny amount of salt in there. It and adds it the, will counter it. It actually allows your brain to 
navigate the flavors. Yeah. That's what it does. It, it triggers and it can add and, some clarity. And also, like, if you have something that's so bitter, you know, that's that's the thing. Like, when you drink it, you know, something like a Malort, for yeah, example. Right. You know, for the folks out there who've never tasted Malort, it's it's a Swedish kind of aquavit-based thing. It It's very powerful. It's wormwood-based. You know, it's got a lot of dill and caraway in there as well. It's like It's like the worst kind of bitter character that right. i i have tasted bartenders in chicago go nuts for it yeah. and, and they seem to be the only people on the planet that go nuts well, for it's, it well it's it's hard to admit mistakes right and people don't do that like they, who they voted for <laughs> making a movie that wasn't really worth rewatching or putting out in the first place like escape from life but anyway oh, oh, yeah or, or the ghostbusters reboot ah uh, yes we all have regrets <laughs> and we'll never admit it but maybe that's part of growing up but going, going back to the bitterness, you know, if you have that overpowering flavor and then they put it in a cocktail and I've had Malort cocktails and all you taste is Malort, mm-hmm. then what is the point in adding it? You know, if you have other ingredients in there that you're wanting to showcase, then why have something that completely blankets it? Right. So in this lab, we talk about balance. We talk about, you know, the perceived, uh, you know, the human perception and like where our thresholds are with bitterness and sour and mm. sweet and salty and where their levels should be in terms of ratios. So we talk about ratios fairly extensively in there. We talk about how to use pH meters. So for me, going back to your original question, my my creative outlet, it was, I was given enough time to sit and work on this lab. I worked on it for probably about five months. Constantly, I read, I I don't know how many books, I have them all on my phone. Uh, Yeah, so I can show you them. I have a Dropbox file of of all the books that I purchased, and I I don't know how many books I read. More than a dozen, all on sensory, going back to like this French guy in the 1800s, and they did an English translation of his book, so I went through all of that. So I went through the the basics and like the genesis point of sensory and olfactory, all the way up to, you know, the, the modern day Dave Arnold, Booze, science, yeah. ultra nerdy kind of stuff. So, so diving into things intellectually and cerebrally is that a that's a good way for you to perhaps quiet down and get some inner balance. Too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because then you can kind of take solace in the fact that when you are talking about these things, you know what you're talking about, and you can talk with conviction and you can talk with passion, and you can also have a message yeah. as well. And that's a really important thing: is what what is the underlying why? Why are we doing it? Sure. And the reason why we're doing it is we want bartenders to be better bartenders and we want bartenders to stop putting so much sugar in their drinks when sure. they don't have to, when they have other options Absolutely. that are available to them. You know, they can use all sorts of fancy like bee pollen bitters or ambergus or, or all of these <laughs> weird and wacky yeah. things. But yet the base things that they're working with are all fairly rudimentary. You know, they're using lemon and lime for acid right. and they're using simple or dem syrup. Yep. And that's it. That That's the full gamut. But then you look behind their bar, how many mezcals they have or how many bitters they have or tinctures that they have or, you know, how, how much like very esoteric spirits that they're going to throw in there and then spending 45 minutes making garnishes. All of this kind of stuff, but then the the foundation of it is still built on this fairly rudimentary That's a foundation. Great, it's, so, almo- it's almost superficial in a lot of cases, right? You're yes. adding these things for a show, and then to your point, the foundation itself is cracked or antiquated at best. Well, exactly. It's like bu- building your house from the top down rather than <laughs> yeah. the bottom up. So yeah. why why start up here? And and I know that a lot of bartenders see that I hate this word star tenders yeah, and yeah. all of these 
very fancy ingredients that they're using and they're like you know if i if i want to be there i have to do this yeah. but you know what you have to understand the basics and you have to understand the fundamentals and you have to be able to make a good tom collins if someone asks for mm-hmm. it or if someone comes in and asks for a cosmo you don't sneer your lip turn oh. around like breathing out and saying sweet christ why am i here you say i'm gonna make them the best cosmo they've ever had you play a three chord verse or in some cases a two chord verse if you're the ramones <laughs> and you just you but just they did it. it well though. they did it because they they said we know what we're going to be and they could always like pet cemetery as a soundtrack that's a little bit creatively expansive for them which is nice yeah but that's that's where you start yeah exactly or even if you go back to like the the first heavy rock bands that were out there so Bands like Death, oh, yeah. not the death metal band, like the black punk band. Wait, yeah. Uh, or you look at even like Black Sabbath. Oh, dude. You know, like they were taking old blues licks yep. and they, they were just... Slowing the shit down. Yeah, drop D <laughs> or yeah. drop E, yeah, yeah. putting it through feedback and fuzzing huge cabinets and none of them were dummy cabinets. And yeah. then having Bill on drums, like being the shit out of drums and it, it was like blues on crack, yeah. but it was a completely different dynamic. But it was the same fundamentals. You're absolutely right. So starting off with these same fundamentals, you can fashion all sorts of flavors that you want to, but understand the basics and understand where your foundations are before you start going pie in the sky. Listen to Sabbath before you listen to Yes or King's Crimson. Or sleep. Or sleep. Yeah, <laughs> that's very fair. Yeah. But yeah, like get the thing. So I, if you can't tell, I always, as an analogy use music as a way to tie everything together because people kind of understand well i suppose they understand that but everybody gets black sabbath yeah you know that makes sense so again i'm thinking about this whole illustrious career that you have and i promise this is all going somewhere but it is all revealing little elements of your personality along the way right like layers that's right i feel like we're in an episode of shrek (laughs) is there episodes of shrek i don't know there should be there should be (laughs) so i wonder i talked to jack teeling a while back uh-huh. And obviously his father was instrumental in changing the perspective about Irish whiskey and stuff. And so, you you know, you're third generation mm-hmm. distillery worker, brand guy. Yeah. So taking making that choice to go and get away from the business, was there any bitterness or any kind of, well, maybe you shouldn't do that when you were going on your journey, like from the family? No. No. They were, no. They were good with it. They were good with it. A hundred percent. You know, my, my parents, God bless them. They were like, you know, whatever makes you happy, you find your own path in life. You're you're smart enough to make your own decisions. Yeah. We're not overly concerned. And then they found out I lived in a tent for a year, and there there was maybe a little hesitation there. A cringe, I think. Well, well, they were like, so long as he's happy, and I was <laughs> extremely happy. It was the most carefree I've ever been in my life. Yeah. I think, you know, I got I got up out of my tent. You know, I went for a run. I I sat on a beach. I worked. I came home, I cooked, I slept, yeah. rinse and repeat, you know, in, in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's amazing. It was incredible. Carefree, completely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you, as you move through life, you know, you do, you find, you find your own way. And, and I'm a firm believer in that. And my, my son. Who's yeah, I was going to ask you, how is fatherhood for you? It's great. I, I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> Okay, Honestly. I thought there was going to be ellipses there. No, no, no. There, there was, I can't recommend there, it. There was no that, ellipses. That, that. Uh, although one of my favorite bands, Biffy Clyro, one of their albums oh, is yeah. called that. It's oh. a Scottish band, if no one's ever heard of them. Great rock band. I thought yeah. they're from Br- 
Britain, sorry. I didn't realize they're, they're from, from Scotland. They're from near, near Kilmarnock in okay, Ayrshire. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. They're a great band, for sure. Three-piece, kind of proto-punk yeah. Scottish band. Great melodies, Try, Trying to break the U.S. market at the moment. Anyway, I, I digress. But yeah, no, being a dad to me is, is incredible. You know, I have a daughter who's nearly 15. Oh, wow. And has a, the, she's inherited my sense of humor. So she, she is a pistol. She is incredible. Uh, I can't recommend having kids enough. I've said that probably three times. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, it improves you as a human being. Mm. You also start to think about responsibility to the planet. And, you know, you know, you don't think. What you're passing on, right? Yeah, you, you don't think in a, in, a, in a selfish kind of solipsistic way where it's just me, 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 me. It's yeah. more about them and their thems and moving forward with that. But my, my son actually is in the hospitality industry. No way. He moved to Ireland actually a few months ago. and he, He's only 18. A lot of his friends went to college. He's like, Dad, I don't, I don't think I want to go to college because I don't know what I want to do yet. Mm. He, you know, he's still a young kid. He's like, well, I can, I can probably help you out. So I spoke to a few people. And uh, a friend of mine uh, spoke to one of his friends who runs a castle in Ireland. Very Fascinating. So she wants to do movie makeup special oh, effects. Cool. That, that's her jam. And one of, one of my good friends works for Lucasfilm, and we... He's taken me around there a bunch of times, so I took my kids there. Yeah, she kind of fell in love with the whole special effects thing. That's incredible. Are so you a horror guy? I do. So I'm. I'm kind of. As I get older, I've become more of a pussy. Whereas <laughs> when I was younger, I used to watch all sorts of yeah, horror sure. movies and and love them, and I still like them. But they they affect me more deeply than they used to. Do you think it's because of the kids? Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. You become hypersensitive to things as yeah. you move through life. Whereas, you know, when, when you're young and, you know, indestructible, right. it's, it's like water off a duck's back. But as you get older, you start to think of the ramifications for everything. And you're yeah. like, oh, I can't believe that they just did that. Their, their parents are going to be <laughs> horrified. <laughs> Dude, you know, <laughs> to pardon a pun. You know, I have, so Dr. Bill Lumsden was in town recently. Uh-huh. I got to interview him. And we really, we both have a love of horror movies. But the thing is, is he likes the, the really raunchy ones. Oh really? He was listing off stuff. I'm like, dude, you know about that? So it's it's a, I, I hope that there's this inner community of like Dario Argento stuff. Oh, that's or, mild compared to what he was talking about. Oh really? Like yeah. what? Like, it was this he... mo- well, so like Cannibal Holocaust. We both, oh yeah, probably Italian. The yeah, they got taken to court. Actually, they had to bring the actors in to prove that they hadn't been killed because they thought it was a snuff movie. You're absolutely Diodato Rogerio. Rogerio. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's one of the greatest stories of film. And the thing is, is when they shot that movie. The, the cast hardly could speak the same language, and so they never saw each other again. It was he wasn't even able to track down all the cast because they didn't <laughs> keep in touch. It's so crazy. <laughs> it was just money for jobs. But anyway, but th- this is the thing is that I throughout Scotland there there are these kind of cool undercurrents of punk rock and of horror movies and all of that. Uh-huh. But when all of this kind of comes together, is Game of Thrones. Right. You've got cinematic sensibilities, and you've got Scotch, and so. As we know, the sought-after line of scotches from Diageo. Mm-hmm. Was it your bright idea to say, you know what would be nice? Let's make scotches dedicated to the houses of Game of Thrones. Uh, it was not my idea. <laughs> okay. No, as much as I would like to sit here and take the credit for it, it was definitely not my idea. So that the idea actually came through from, from meetings with the show's creators. Oh, man. Uh, so D.B. Weiss and those yeah. folks. So they're huge Scotch fans. 
they spoke to HBO and said it would be great to, to have a Scotch partnership. Diageo being the, the largest producer with 29 single malt distilleries yeah. were the obvious choice to talk to. So they came to our team, our innovation team, and I, I came on relatively late in the process. So like all of the paperwork had all been done and you know the, the ethos was there and the thought process was there. I was brought on to, to help shortlist the whiskeys. So I was given this long list of whiskeys and, and I sat there and I, I poured through them and, and I was like, you know, this hasn't been available in the United States before. It would be great to bring Lo Royal Loch Nagar to the yeah, United oh, yeah. States because I love Royal Loch Nagar. It would be great to bring a cast rent Klein leash at an affordable price point. So can we do that, please? Yeah. So my wish list, uh, and I, I worked with our wonderful innovation team, and we, we sat in a room and we went through these great liquids. Uh, we, we finally whittled down the ones we wanted, and then that was given to our team in Scotland, our blending team in Scotland, to see if they had enough liquid, if it was going to be viable to yeah. do it. And then through a, a, fa a fairly iterative process, that I, I don't have time to go into, but a, a great process, a very creative process. They then spoke to our archive team. We have an archive team in Scotland uh -huh. in Menstrie, uh, run by a wonderful woman, woman called Christine, who is actually coming to Tales of the Cocktail this summer. Oh, I'm crazy. doing a seminar with our archive team called Raiders of the Lost Archive. Nice. I came up with that. I was very proud of myself. That's that a better day. creation than the Game of Thrones scotches, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that, not me. <laughs> Um, so, so Christine runs the archive, and there's a, a wonderful lady there called Joanne McCarricker, who is our malts historian and archivist, and they showed her the shortlist, a uh, fairly extensive shortlist, and she's like, you know, this has to make sense. She, she was very familiar with the show. She yeah. reread the books, rewatched the show, and went, here, here are the genuine connections between them. Wow. So, for example... Cardew was run by two generations of very powerful women, so it made sense that they sat within the house. Yeah. You know, she went through this for, for a good couple of months, so it all made complete sense, so it, it didn't seem contrived. Right. And then once she was happy with it, they were like, here's the distilleries that make sense. Here are the whiskeys you shortlisted from each of those. Now you need to make a decision on which ones you're happy with and the ABV that you guys are happy with. We then picked what we liked, and then the Scotland blending team went away and, and created Man. the commercial liquid for it. That's, I mean, it's a really interesting way to do it, yeah. you know, because you're, you kind of say, well, we got to have it, for one, right? It's got to be somewhere. We want to bring things that are new. So, like, that lagable one is a different configuration. They're all new. Yeah. Every, oh, like, yeah. never existed in that. Yeah. Every ABV single or... one of them were created bespoke oh, for that incredible. range. So, okay. ab absolutely everything was built from scratch. And I didn't know the Klein Leash was, was castrated. Yeah. Which house is it? That's a really good question. I'll it's, it's the Northy one. The Northy one. Oh, <laughs> the Winterfell one? Uh, no, no, no. That one. Oh, what is the... Well, well, I should really know this off the top of my head. It was. Anyway, it's, it's, it's the Klein Leash one. It's that's, delicious. That's incredible. Yeah, they have it here in town. In fact, when yeah. I go for a frozen Irish coffee later on at Nickel City, I... That might be the... Yeah. One to I'll, I'll see if they let me have one. So you watch the show? I do. How are you feeling so far? Two episodes in, season eight. <sighs> I have a theory on what's going to happen next. Good, just because it can't be a spoiler because it's a theory. What do you think? My theory is that, so the show's been great up to this point, but they're obviously on a simmer before they go on a full boil. Oh, for yeah, like the it's last, all foreplay. Yeah, before, before the last three or four episodes of complete carnage. Sure. Uh, 
So I think that in the next episode, and this is just a theory, I do not know, yeah. is that they keep referencing the crypt. Go with the crypt. Yeah, the crypt yeah. is safe. Right. Everyone should hide in the crypt, apart from Bran, who's sitting there all, all, all wise, yeah. saying, no, don't um, go there. Right. But what's the crypt full of? Well, to bury the dead, but also to... Dead people. And what does the Night King do? Oh, my God. He brings the dead back to life. Oh, dude, I didn't even think about that. So my, my theory, the next one, they're all going to be down there, and then the dead are going to come back and attack them in the crypt. Oh, my God. That's, that's remarkable. That's what I think. There's also this theory, too, that Bran is the Night King. Yeah, Have I've heard that, that, too. Well, they, they make some kind of, now it might be a large swing, but they make some kind of insinuation that the face is the same. Uh-huh. And somehow it's just an evolution of a time. I hadn't seen the face thing. I'd heard, I'd heard like, the, I, I go on the Reddit. Yes, in quotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there, there's, a, there's a wormhole that you can get lost in yeah. for as long as you want. Yeah. But, yeah, some of the theories there that he, he is somewhat complicit in the whole thing. And, and he's there as, like, the deep mole yeah. just to disrupt things and, you know, guide them in the wrong direction and yeah. so on and so forth. Who, who knows? I don't know. It's fun to think that anything's possible, though. Yeah. That's the piece I think is really riveting. But they, 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 they could do with a Trojan horse. And that he, he's already got the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's got a horsey face. Doesn't he look a little bit of horsey face? He's somewhat equine in feature. <laughs> Those bangs for sure look like a... <laughs> Man, you know, so... Brand biscuit. Brand <laughs> There's so much that we could talk about. It. You know, we could, this could be three installments. This could be three chapters and stuff. And, you know, you have this great legacy already. And it's over 28 years in the industry and all of that. So, you know, I, I had two questions left. And that is... You already alluded to Nickel City, of course. You mm -hmm. guys got barbecue for lunch, right? Where'd you go for? We went to La Barbecue. Oh, La Barbecue. Yep. Perfect. Had you beautiful stuff, so it's good. I, I've been there many times before. Yeah. I'm a fan. Can't get it anything like that anywhere else either. No, no. So in in terms of like uh, food terroir, it's it's incredible yeah. down here. And and you know I don't want to upset too many people, but Texas barbecue, hands down, best barbecue in the United States. Agreed. So no <laughs> argument there. Yeah. Next time I go to the Carolinas, I'm probably going to get lynched for me. <laughs> <laughs> or, told, or talked to very Talk sternly. To yeah, there'll like, be some finger wagging. Over some sure. peach tea. <laughs> it's a bourbon. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> drink so Nickel City 2 is on the dock, it sounds like? I think I will go there. Uh, a couple of friends were there, so I'll go and say hi to them. Great. And a bunch and, of folks over And there. They, they serve some delicious George Dickel. Oh, yeah. Barrel. That Nicole, I finally get to interview here a few weeks, about well, a month ago or so. Yeah. Amazing. Nickel number 12, I'm trying, not single-handedly, but I'm trying to make sure people drink it because that price. So that's, that's my promise to you, and you didn't even ask, but I am trying to make sure people get their hands on these bottles. And that bottle to bond that's come out. Oh, yeah. Just remarkable. So. It's unreal, right? It's so good, man. I, I had a, uh, I was very lucky. I was down at Dickel a couple of weeks ago, and, and we got a chance to taste it there. And she has done a phenomenal job mm -hmm. of that, that Dickel bottle and bond. It's, it's one of the best liquids I've tasted in a long well, time. Well, you don't expect it. The, the feeling, because it's so elegant and bright and punchy, but yet so balanced, is why you don't think it's Dickel. Yeah. Obviously, or actually, a lot of times, two people, they just, they don't regard Dickel as a good whiskey, but it's intensely delicious and rounded. And well, people in the industry do. Sure. You know, I, I had a good conversation with Jimmy Russell a couple of years ago, and he was like, you know, George Dickel, hands down, one of my favorite whiskeys oh, yeah. of all time, and I wish we owned it. 
and and like that was completely unprompted yeah wow and i was like you're right it is you know but not enough people know about it right and that's kind of what makes it nice you know it's like having your favorite restaurant that no one really knows about because you can go there and you can get a seat mm-hmm. and then everyone finds out about, about it and it becomes franklin barbecue and you have to wait four and a half hours right. to get in there but it it deserves more exposure than right. than it's got you know obviously you know the, the heartline like tennessee and and kentucky and places like that people are very au fait with it and they know it very very well yeah. but if you you talk to someone in north dakota about george dickel they're probably gonna be scratching their head and they'll say you know there's there's only one tennessee whiskey right and we drink it with coke <laughs> well there's it's a big enough playing field that both those guys can be on it and they're yeah. so different you know but and they're both great whiskeys. Yeah, they're just oh, very for different. Sure, totally different deal. I, you know, we all get a little upset when our favorite band gets big. Mm-hmm. Like Green Day was on lookout for a long time playing ba- basement shows and stuff, and all of a sudden they really blow up, and people are just moaning about it. Or post Bleach Nirvana. <sighs> yeah, post Bleach Nirvana. <laughs> post Sub Pop Soundgarden. Like yeah. you know, all these guys. But you know what? There's enough room for the growth, and I think it's about time to have a little bit more of a Dickel rising. Yeah, Dickle Rising. Yeah. There you go. Is that a new punk band name? I think it's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> well, my last question for you, and I'm gonna make it specific. Normally, I'll leave it more open ended, but let's say, let's just say, kindly, you're 14. Okay? Right. So you're sipping that anywhere in the world, doesn't matter, and you can sit and have a conversation with any living or deceased punk musician. Who would you love to sit and have a dram with? That's a really, really tough question because there's there's so many different conversation pieces I would want to have. Like I, I can I can be as as nerdy as I want, but I can be as like goofy as sure. I want, yeah. and you can run the gamut in the punk world mm-hmm. there. But I I think I would love to sit down and have drinks with. Does it have to be one person, or can you it be a band? Do bands, fine, for sure. I think I would like to sit down and have drinks with the Descendants. Oh, man. The Beach Boys of Punk. Oh, dude. <laughs> I have a... When I was a young kid, 15 years old, I kept bugging this music director at the local, local station in Salt Lake City. He owed me a CD, Stranger Than Fiction, by Bad Religion. Uh-huh. Fact. And I was like, well, can I have my CD? You know, you told me you could get it, so... I was in 1996, I think. That's exactly right. Yeah, so he said, come down to the station, and I'll just pick out a bunch of stuff. And so I ended up being his intern for a a summer and then some. And then I got to go to all the shows. So remember when Everything Sucks came out, Uh which I think is really a beautiful return to form for The Descendants. I ate lunch with The Descendants as a kid, and Bill was just shoveling it in, dude. I still (laughs) remember that. (laughs) 23, yeah, like 23 years later. He's such a massive dude. And he was like, I guess he needs all that for that fast drumming that he does. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the send that's a great one. Yeah, but then you watch, have you seen Filmage, the movie about them? No, I've heard it. I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, you should check it out. It's, it's basically the story about them, Hermosa Beach, yeah, and oh, being yeah. on the fishing pier and hanging out there and just being like stoner bum punk kids. Dude. Throughout the whole, like, they started listening to a lot of melodic music, like the monkeys and the Beach Boys. Yeah. And they're like, we're going to rip off their melodies and then turn it up to like 180 BPM. And that's basically what they did. They just took old like surf 
records and then janked it up and then everyone jumped on it. It was like, oh, they actually have melodies. And they're talking about, you know, being rejected and being nerds and being geeks and, you know, the disenfranchised youth, but they were doing it in a kind of nice way. It it wasn't like, you know, Reagan youth, for example, who are just like ranting against, you know, Republicans and authority. They were talking about like being awkward and growing up and stuff we actually it, all go. Yeah, through, things right? that everyone could relate to, and th- and they really they really did kind of get a huge following off the back of being genuine. And then to this day, you know, they're still touring as yeah. hard as they ever did. Obviously, Milo went to college and they made an album <laughs> about it. Do you know this is the, what I've heard? Now I don't know if this is true or not. Do you know where he works? No. He well, at least up until recently, he was a scientist or he right. is a scientist for yeah. 3M. He was a chemist for them and. We're, on the East Coast, and he would just come back and do tours and take vacation. Oh, really? Isn't that crazy? And invented a new type of caffeine, hypercaffeine spasinate. Oh, really? Did you hear about no, that? No, Oh, yeah, he did. What the shit, really? Because they're such coffee nerds. Yeah. He created this, like, turbocharged version of caffeine. <laughs> well, just what we need. <laughs> Faster descendants. That yeah. doesn't make any sense, man. But, dude, they're, they're hurling towards their 60s, and yeah. they're, they're still rocking as oh, hard still, as they ever did. They're still going. Man, well, there's so much more chat to have, and hopefully I'll visit you soon, and we get some more scotch and all that. But you know, and it's it's been just a pleasure, man. Everybody's Likewise. like, "This guy's great. He's into punk rock." I'm like, "Okay, good. Then we're fine." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do listen to a lot of punk rock. Well, I listen to all sorts. Yeah, so. it's yeah, very, very big gamut. Biffy Clyro. I mean, that's that's sensible pop rock in a sense. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So like prog pop rock. Yeah, I guess they are now. Post, they, they post start- emo. Post, post it is because they started like around. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip in Austin, and I'm going to yeah. go seek out that cast strength lockable one for Game of Thrones. Like Kleinleash. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Kleinleash is the Lannister house. Yeah. Cast strength. But the nine year old lockable one is, is phenomenal as well. It's dusty. Yeah. It's smoky. It's sweet. It's rich. It's, it's bananas. It's good. It's good stuff. So, you know what? Good job, man. Thank you so well much. Well done on the line. and Looking forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, well, cheers. Cheers, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Plastic clink. Because <laughs> we classy sitting on a floor. <laughs> the most punk rock interview you'll ever do. <laughs> cheers. Thank cheers. you. So there we have it. Everybody was telling me how cool of a guy you and Morgan is. And you know what? They're right. He and I hit it off. We hung out. I mean, we sat in a hotel ballroom. Because the heat turned my computer and his phone off, so we had to head indoors, sitting on the ground of an empty ballroom at a corporate hotel with two microphones in our hands. That is, in essence, punk rock podcasting, if you will. So it was great talking about movies, music, fatherhood, fishing, relaxation, and scotch, of course. So, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with me. Hope to have a sip with you soon. I'm sure we'll make it happen. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter if you're wondering if you're disappointed or relieved that Lucifer Season 4 has concluded on Netflix, or if you're thinking, man, John Wick 3, how many dudes can he shoot in another movie? Please keep dancing.